Hi everyone, welcome to PA Talks, an interview series by Parametric Architecture, the world's most renowned avant-garde architecture platform about parametric and computational design. We meet the architecture and design pioneers on this podcast and talk about their careers, experiences, methodologies, and visions for the future. My name is Hamid Hasanzadeh, founder and editor-in-chief of Parametric Architecture Platform. Welcome to the show, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. To support this podcast, please check the links in the description. Make sure to follow our platform on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and support us on Patreon. You may listen to this conversation on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. The following is my conversation with Patrick Schumacher, an architect and architectural theorist based in London. He is the principal architect of Zaha Hadid Architects, widely known for working with Dame Zaha Hadid since joining Zaha Hadid Architects practice in 1988. Patrick completed his architectural diploma and received his degree from Stuttgart University in 1990 and received his PhD at the Institute for Cultural Science, University of Klagenfurt in 1999. His completed projects include the Maxi Center for Contemporary Art and Architecture and one of the practice's first completed constructions, the Vitra Fire Station. Schumacher uses the term parametricism to denote the usage of advanced computational design tools and techniques in architecture. He argues that the global convergence in recent avant-garde architecture justifies the enunciation of this novel style. Consequently, in 2008, he launched a manifesto for parametricism at the Venice Biennale of Architecture. So we are going to discuss a little bit more with Patrick about the parametricism and parametric architecture and computational tools. So stay tuned with us and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> yeah, crash this hall too. <laughs> yeah, it's wasted so complete. much of my time. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. We hear you completely. Okay, I already hate the whole thing. So let's let's yeah. move on. Great, great. Thank you. Thanks for joining this live session. After ages, yes, we made oh, it. Oh God! But I don't yeah. know how I got in here, so it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. It's like I sent the, I sent you the request. Okay. Uh, hopefully you accepted it. Uh, thank you. Uh, you are our first guest on uh, this live session. Okay. Uh, you don't need any introduction to our followers. You are a lecturer, a principal of the architect. Your uh, articles are famous on architectural magazines and. Uh, Everybody knows you, I think, and I will just go directly into my uh, questions. For start, sure. do you have no anything? Problem. Do you have anything to uh, say to our followers as a start? Um, well, hi guys. Sorry about the cock up. <laughs> it's I'm, okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm behind the curve. I'm okay. I'm still into Twitter and Facebook. Great. Um, so. Yeah, let's go on. I mean, I've I've been uh, learning about Zoom and we're using that. I'm using uh, Skype for business. I'm using GoToMeeting. Yeah. I'm using everything, but uh, so far I'm using Instagram. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah. Please, uh, sorry guys for the for the wait. Um, and uh, let's let's have a conversation. Great. So uh, so these little comments and 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 icons should we ignore them or should we respond to them? Uh, I will turn off the comments. Uh, not to be. A source of distraction. So I will ask my questions from you. Then, yeah, if we have let's... time, if you have time, we will get the questions from comments as well. Okay. All right. Great. No problem. Okay. At all. Great. So, uh, would you please tell our followers uh, who is Patrick and what makes Patrick Schumacher Patrick Schumacher? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I'm a unique individual. I mean, there's nobody like that. Well, everybody oh. could say that, and I leave others to to the, try to define it. But if I if I wanted to define it, I would say um, I have this kind of combination, uh, which I also admire a number of other figures, right. and I'm, what I'm aspiring to is that um, a combination of being a design talent and somebody who is designing, and somebody who's also doing uh, business work. I mean, organizing business and building a business. But most importantly, I'm an ideas person. So I'm somebody who is thinking hard about 
um, the development of the discipline, the meaning of architecture and design and the built environment for societal progress. So I'm a theorist, theorist of architecture, embedding architectural theory in, a whole, in an overall theory of the human project, if you like, or certain, and uh, developing an attitude and a position. And that combination, uh, which shows up, of course, in the writings, um, and they, these writings and the thinking is guiding to some extent practice. I mean, of course, practice is also um, dealing with a lot of other forces which push and pull right. and prevent and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But as much uh, as I can, I'm trying to have a uh, purposeful and meaningful theory-led design practice. And an important component of this is also teaching to build up for the future the answers, the repertoires, um, the exploration that will deliver a stream of possible solutions into the practice, into the real world pursuits. And then again, through uh, lecturing, uh, discussing the results, I can also reflect on the results and test the theoretical uh, assumptions, predictions, and so on. So that's the unique combination, theory, practice, business. That's I mean, impressive. Theory, design, practice, business, yeah. That's impressive. Uh, would you please discuss a little bit about uh, your journey of becoming an architect, then joining to Zaha Hadid Architect? Well, yes. Um, I grew up uh, in a small town and uh, my parents had a house which they kind of self-built and then there was an extension, the architect came around. So that was my first contact with architecture, with construction, design. And then as a teenager, I got into the work of Mies van der Rohe. I was uh, somebody who was in love with modernism, particularly modernism. elegant elegant and radical otherworldly modernism of somebody like Mies van der Rohe. And I enjoyed that. But then growing up a little further, I was, I was initially more ambitious uh, than just kind of homing in directly on a particular profession. I wanted to understand the world and I went into philosophy first. So I wanted to crack up that pretense uh, which is hanging out there that there are so-called <laughs> philosophers who yeah. who have a deeper um, penetra intellectual penetration of the, uh, the, the big questions uh, of the world of what the human project might be etc so I had to get in there first get an overview yeah. and orientation and then uh, move on from there back into uh, practical life. So I didn't want to stay um, purely academic bookish creature. I wanted to do stuff in the world, but informed by a fundamental orientation, let's say. And that's, that's yeah. the way I, I got into architecture a little later. So after my philosophy studies yeah. and quite quickly, uh, first when I actually, uh, my first foray into architecture was in Stuttgart and I got quickly into high-tech high architecture, which was big en vogue there. In, in the mid 80s, so Foster, Rogers, uh, these works, I studied them and did a number of such projects uh, at school. And then I transferred to London, I learned something else, I learned to be more, uh, in how, how architecture could be critically discussed uh, on, also on the terms of philosophy, uh, I got into deconstructivism. And uh, the deconstructivism show, which was announced at, which was at MoMA in 88 and, um, was uh, there's a conference in uh, Tate, Britain, now Tate, Britain at the time, that was the only Tate gallery in London, uh, where I met Zaha actually. And uh, I had just studied one year uh, of architecture in, in um, the South Bank University in London here, and then I moved, uh, applied for Zaha, and the studio was a very small studio, but I had seen her work already in Stuttgart, and she was- Which, a, year, which year was this? 1988. So Zaha was, uh, was, wow. was, uh, had, uh, just had started two years earlier, a small office, uh, a handful of people. Before that, had she'd worked from home or from the AA. She was still right. in contact with the AA and I was hanging, uh, hanging around at the AA as well. Right. So I joined that studio and we were just a uh, very, very small group with big ambitions, let's say. Exactly, exactly. So how has your interest emerged with parametric and computational design? Well, I mean, the, uh, quite early on, uh, even in Stuttgart, I was, uh, I was a student there. They had uh, just uh, invested in a suite of Apple computers. This is uh, in 83, 84. 
and we actually got a bit of into programming. At the time, there wasn't the kind of fancy um, graphic user interface. It was all kind of these uh, text-based yeah. uh, interfaces and, and, and no proper CAD systems which we had, but little, little, uh, little programming routines, etc. And then when I came to London, I, there was already some interesting computing going on. This was at the Salzburg University. Programs you might have never heard about, like Swivel, and then I got into the early mini Apple with the, with the graphic user interface and 3D modeling tool like Model Shop. Very, very simple and primitive, but fun. And fun to play with, fun to work with. So I got into this quite early. But even as a, in philosophies, in my philosophy studies, I got into computer science somewhat. So I was got very fascinated early on with computation, computer science. This, this, this uh, was very attractive to me. And so I got into this. Maybe when I joined Zaha, we really had, first of all, zero computing power. <laughs> yeah. So we went back to, to hand drawing and sketching. And I had invested my teenage years in uh, exercising my sketching talents. So I could fit in there as, as well. So we created a lot of the, the early fluid and, uh, let's say, highly distorted and dynamic compositions all through hand sketches and... Uh, French curves, etc. And but but two years in, we we started to get these little Mac computers and started to combine hand sketching with computational modeling. Only a few years later, actually, we we got into proper CAD systems, pioneering this exactly. as well, uh, where we suddenly instead of ten people drawing up a competition with breaking their backs and and using trying to put you know, dense, dense sets of inclines, highly precise across large canvases. I mean, that was killing us. So, uh, um, so I, as a, as a single person, I could do all the plans quicker than 10 people could kind of bend, bend over huge drawings. So that was an enormous productivity shift as well. So that got right. us into the power of computation, but it really took an, also an intellectual breakthrough. The, the early part of Fermatism was the, the early first phase of fermatism was called folding. And it was, it was not only that we used new tools, but that new ideas came through. Or what we were doing with Zaha, uh, this degree of dynamism, fluidity, the idea of gradients, of, of surfaces uh, peeling and folding, that could be much better expanded with, with, with these tools. And that became a new direction in architecture, initially exactly. called folding in architecture. And then later, in retrospect, I started to call this parametricism, particularly when we got into generative components, when we finally arrived at parametric modeling with tools like Grasshopper, we are very deep into parametricism already. But it took a year. It took 15 years to get there. Yeah, actually, I would like to ask about that word as well. Like, you coined out the word parametricism in 2008. And yeah. how, has, how was born, how was parametricism was born? Well, I mean, um, it was actually... And what are its principles, actually? <laughs> well, of course, I will tell about the principles. principles actually, I, won't, I, I, don't want, I don't want you to fit the whole article of like 100 no, no, no. pages in I five will, minutes, will, just will, as will. general. Well, I give you two. I give you the principles first. I mean, every element of architecture becomes parametrically variable. Uh, that's just if you even start toying around, you can make it then dependent on external parameters, whether they are exactly. environmental, like sun exposure, etc., to drive, uh, for instance, fenestration or, or, or the geometry of um, shading elements, etc. But so we have, first of all, the elements parametrically available, then we're thinking of systems of elements or arrays and fields and swarms of elements. So, and so the variations are ordered. So it's all about rule-based. It's about scripts generating. So not about inventing forms here and there, but uh, and then you have multiple systems. That's a very important uh, aspect of parametricism. Not only that continuous variation uh, of, of elements and aspects and forms, but also that multiple systems come in and are correlated. So you get these dependency networks you can set up between something like, for instance, the structural system, the, fe uh, the envelope, the fenestration, um, occupiable surfaces, the, the spatial divisions. So that what right. I'm thinking about is each of these systems is parametrically uh, set up through rules, and then there are rules of correlation so that these different systems, are in their variation and changes and uh, change functions are interdependent, oftentimes in non-trivial ways. So that gives you a really very, very beautifully orchestrated, complex 
organic whole and then you could do that also with the whole city you can you can script the, an array of buildings across the topography and there will be dependency relations of the for instance slope uh, versus building height or building orientation versus sun direction etc so so that's basically uh, all what the tools deliver i mean grasshopper and these kind of parametric uh, system tools that also becomes a new um, set to exploit that is eminently rational and beautiful and adaptive and 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 meaningful but it's also that becomes the principles and values of parametricism exactly exactly and wh what about tectonism tectonism is also a birth child of parametricism and of course i mean that's a, you know this is never standing still so that's the next developmental stage if you like yeah. um uh, currently and we're already 10 years into that and in a few years back i've retrospectively tried to define that it's a much more matured uh, attitude. So here we go and we also generate more uh, tectonic variety, more formal variety, because we're driving not only um, the systems formally, just let them differentiate. And we're not only using NURB surfaces, for instance, or um, uh, component arrays uh, to differentiate, but what we're looking at is engineering logics more precisely. Uh, so it's less playful, more rigorous, and uh, so in terms of, uh, for instance, structural um, logics and different fabrication logic, different material logics, and their variations are coming in and are consciously selected and orchestrated as well. Uh, so structural logics, environmental engineering logics, as well as fabrication logics. So if you work with different types of, instead of using always nerve surface, sometimes you use uh, use curved foldings or conic surfaces when it becomes work with sheet metal or you work with um, uh, catenary systems right. when you use hanging structures or you have anti-clastic tensile structures or compression only vaulting synclastic walls etc and these are they all have their particular characteristics and so you have already a, a, a beautiful range of types of surfaces and they all have they're all equally characterful, but unique and different. But they also have that degree of freedom, which all of these systems have. They, they can always fit themselves into complex sites onto irregular uh, footprints and always find a kind of balanced and optimized configuration because we're not inventing these forms. We're allowing the systems to evolve these forms. And the great hero, which uh, we owe this to as an early pioneer is Fry Otto. Yes. And it was great. I was a student of Otto in Stuttgart <laughs> in the 80s. And yeah. at the time, I wasn't quite able to fully appreciate. I was more into Foster and Rogers. What a fool I was. <laughs> I had the diamond right in front of me. And I wouldn't, I, right. I somehow intuitively attracted to him. And he went to the Institute and it was, it was, was kind of curious and, and, and interesting. But I didn't quite get it at the time. Yes. So later yeah, I went back to study his works properly. Yeah. Actually, in 2015, he got the first sticker prize as well. And it's good to mention his name as well, Otto. Thank you for mentioning. <laughs> well, for Otto, I mean, actually, you know who was responsible for him getting it? It was Zaha. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks because to she her was as in well. the, She was in the jury and we, we both kind of shared that love for Otto And I've been talking about him all the time. So. It was great. And he, 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 he passed away in the same year, but he got, he received the beautiful message exactly. at the end of his life. Yeah, exactly. So since passing of the names are headed in 2016, what were the challenges you faced to lead uh, the, like the top of the industry as the dark thing? Well, yeah, I mean, to stay on top is, I tell you, it's, it's tough. It's, it's kind of stressful. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I want to kind of say, oh, God, leave it behind. But no, I mean, I had to step up, of course. And uh, I was quite, I mean, we were well built as an organization. So, so and internally, of course, I've been with Zaha for so many years. I was suspected there was no leadership challenge, no infighting, none of that. Just pure solidarity and pulling together. Uh, half of the staff are anyway, ex-students of ours, of mine, or me and Zaha teaching. So, so that was no problem. Um, also, other architects I've been respected. Uh, they understood who I was for many, many years. I'm friends with all the other uh, greats and bads and goods of, of the field. <laughs> uh, 
Right. So, um, but, but, you know, the big challenge was, would I be credible in front of uh, mass media? I wasn't so exposed to that. I was hiding behind Sarah. Yeah. And she took the heat and I was going, you know, more in the kind of academic realm and not so much in the mass media realm. So I wasn't sure if that would fly and how much this would fly. And I did uh, got some kind of beaten up here and there as well. So it wasn't an easy run. <laughs> and also I wasn't sure with clients, you know, how would clients um, keep coming? Would, would, it, would, would the firm without uh, the great charismatic leader and figurehead and charmer Zahadid, would we still get jobs? And yeah. first of all, all the jobs we had, even if the smallest just started, they kept, they kept uh, trust with us and let us uh, uh, continue with the jobs we have. But also we got um, a lot of new jobs and we got invited to major projects and thankfully also uh, cultural projects we were invited, we were competing, we won uh, a handful of those as well. Since. So, so I'm very grateful and that wasn't clear, that wasn't to be taken for granted that we could keep playing on that elevated level where you need um, not only a good business organization and um, talent, but you also need some form of intellectual and cultural leadership uh, to be trusted with complex public problems, buildings, uh, also on the field of urbanism and so on. So, so that we, uh, that came through, and now we actually expanded our our reach. Uh, for instance, in the direction of um, airports and yes. infrastructure projects, but we continue to do museums, and we just won, for instance, Shenzhen Science Museum. We won the Ekaterinburg Concert Hall. Um, that's very important to me as well, as well as make, we, we, we just got planning commission for a new big twin tower project in London. So it's also a breakthrough in terms of new, um, um, let's say, um, types of work which we can take on. Exactly. So could you talk to us a lot about the main objectives, keeping the highly recognized practice like you are had at Architect uh, on top of the industry until this day? Well, I mean, the key is that we, uh, we also kind of new talents coming up from below, if you like. I mean, there's some shooting stars, or, I mean, serious <laughs> characters like Jack Engels or Thomas Hatherwick. So, and we need, to, we need to stay on top by being, remaining innovative. So every new project we have to carefully consider uh, what's appropriate, what's right, but also what would be an, 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 a chance for innovation. And to do that, we keep using um, or working with students, 60 of our people, we have 400 people, 60 of them are actually teaching around the world in different places, a lot of them in London, like the AA in particular, or UCL, but also other youth schools. And I myself uh, stay tuned and work uh, regularly with the AA Design Research Lab. So I'm having studios every year and yeah. exploring new avenues and themes. Currently, we're working a lot on kinetic system and AI-empowered, uh, um, creative, spontaneous, responsive environments, for instance, but also working on uh, high-density urbanism at the moment, right, right now, with, with uh, clusters of towers. So, so I'm keeping, uh, uh, I'm, I've been working, on, uh, teaching as well in other, in other schools, like, like, for instance, the GSD every now and then, but the AA is my home base, and that's incredibly important. So, yes, and there's exactly. not only me teaching there, but Shadia Bushan, for instance, our uh, head of code is teaching with me at the DRL and, and many others are teaching. So to keep, and to keep uh, the, the research um, uh, is not about so much training up right. workplace, <laughs> but, but it's about experimenting, uh, you know, with, with, with talented people who, who appreciate what we're trying to do and understand what we're trying to do to explore new avenues uh, exactly. of innovative work, which we can then gradually bring into the mainstream, I mean, into the real world, um, whether it's urban themes, whether it's some of these um, uh, work environments, uh, robotic um, elements, for instance. This usually takes five, 10 years. We've done a lot of tensile and, and, and shell structures, uh, which not, originally at the ERL and then brought it into uh, into the firm, for instance, or we've done skeletons and structural ex 
question in, in towers, which we brought into the real world uh, 10 years on. We bring it from the DRL into the research groups and then slowly through smaller and, and ever larger projects into, into the final professional repertoire of the firm. So that this keeps evolving and is not getting stuck like right. some of our major competitors are in the risk of getting stuck or they are stuck. <laughs> if you yeah. look at, the, you know, what they're doing now is not so much different from what they've done 30 years ago. So, so that ago. still has right. a market, but um, I think in the long run, I think we got to be very adaptive, creative, innovative, and keep churning the, the research. Yeah. So that's, well, so that's my recipe. Yeah, after, uh, like, Law Hat and Architect has involved on many projects on many scales, like from small scale and to larger scale, towers, skyscrapers, and airports, and every kind of scale. Uh, so what is the next move towards? Well, I mean, as I said, the next move is, first of all, um, to, you know, there's so many, in the moving certain aspects of interactivity of um, sense, sensors, actuators, um, responsive environments, interactive environments, to bring that into the real world. To functionalize this. That still exists only in research and in the art world. I and mean, it exists there for 20 years. So it's high time to bring this out. And I think if you look at a lot of buildings, particularly in the corporate world, if you look at Google campus, they have an insatiable thirst for flexibility. And the environments and their continuous reconfiguration is very complex. So I want to develop architectural agents and systems that are AI empowered with learning capacity, with spontaneity, where they offer uh, responsive to what's going on, uh, they, they join a kind of shared life process. So that's one of the projects I foresee. Yeah. Now, in terms of uh, that new experience that we more and more go digital, uh, all of our 400 people are working from home right now. Uh, although we still have a need our office space just like a server farm or like yeah. you know all the the machines with the, 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 the big software packages and the fast processing capacity connected to the server, that's where the work is taking place. Uh, and then uh, staff are at home mirroring those screens and driving these machines. But still, uh, communication is now shifted to Skype on business, to Zoom, to, to, to go to meeting. We make client presentations. We have our board meetings. Uh, so that's a, it's a new experience and a lot of people have been talking about this. It works better than we thought. Productivity is being maintained. We yeah. keep meeting deadlines. So, so if that's the case, if that experience manifests and we see this going on for a few more weeks and months, I think the investment in the built environment is one thing which will to some extent continue, but there will be massive more investment in these kind of systems. And that's also an interesting task for designers. So I'm thinking already about cyberspace, about getting in and designing these virtual communication spaces. So uh, do you think do you think the task of architects for the future, like for finding solutions for pandemics like this? Uh, how, <laughs> yeah, well, how, I said, it's not only pandemics. I'm not sure if we will have more of these all the time, but it's also just but we should be that, ready. You know, look at the convenience. I mean, um, life goes on, even though, for instance, Frankfurt Airport is down by 97%. Um, if I look back on the, on the last weeks and then I sit back and say, hey, maybe it's not so bad that I hadn't had to fly three times to, 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 to China and, and Russia and, and Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera, and India, like I used to. And uh, maybe we can do more uh, virtually in terms of communication. So, so that will have an impact if that becomes a general experience. And as I said, I think there will be more investment in this, in these kind of spaces and maybe slightly less in office spaces. I mean, I shouldn't say that too loudly because we're, we're building massive office spaces around the world and right. corporate spaces, but that will be a factor. I mean, it will also be an emphasis on more, giving more space and complexity to residences which now have right. to accommodate various work, forms of work from home, 
I mean, it's not going to be universal, but it's going to be on the margin uh, more people, and that's going to be have a quantitative effect. And I think we would like to get into these systems. So we have a we have a we are a global design firm. We're doing architecture, urban design, interior design, um, but also product and furniture design, fashion design, etc. And uh, we haven't done so much graphic design and particularly um, communication design in the sense of uh, web tools and web interfaces. And this is, these are colleagues of ours, right? All of these design disciplines are uh, connect up and they're connected up already in the Bauhaus. And uh, all designers, in a, fan, in a way, communication design or all design is communication and framing of interactions and communication. So, so some of, you know, the way this interface is structured here, you on top, me below, I mean, that could be, uh, there could be many ways in which this interface could be created. And if you yeah. slip into larger surfaces of the built environment, which become virtual windows, and if you're moving from a kind of magazine or graphic design based um, sensibility and construction of the web into a full three-dimensional immersive environment version of the web, which was originally the idea when, idea. when, the, web yes. came, you know, when the web came up in the uh, uh, mid-90s. Uh, I was teaching at the, in Berlin and I, we jumped on this and we created a, a cyberspace project. It was the so-called virtual college where the idea was that you can, it's like a video game you enter and you encounter um, spaces and places which which offer you um, experiences information seminars lectures books uh, movies to, to so it's a navigation space it's an interaction space a bit like you know facebook is playing with this kind of uh, exactly. you, you, you 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 become an avatar in in this world i think that idea might take off in particular if you if we really have to in the future have these conferences like recently i've done a lot of zoom conferences with up to 50 80 100 people and you have the kind of sensibility of a 2d grid with with little with little photos no, you cannot see and exactly. recognize and understand <laughs> and then and it's, it's maybe comes at a certain point uh, illegible and counterintuitive so i see there a big uh, potential picking up an idea i was working on literally uh, 25 years ago Right, right. Uh, I'll dive into some of your projects, like enlarged venue projects with multiple functions, such as Haider Elliott Center. Uh, how did you resolve the spaces uh, away from clutters? Well, clutter is obviously the kit of death of, 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 of elegant and, and um, efficient uh, communication spaces. So, but if you have complex institutions with many different parts and places and offerings, the danger of clutter is always there. So, so that's where parametrism comes in as well, to maintain legibility and clarity in the face of complexity. Not so you answered the, the questions with parametrism <laughs> in that project? Of course. Of course, the point is that you have, that, that, that there's a unity across differences and that you be minimalist in details, but complex in spatial relations with a lot of deep vistas. So you have to get the clutter and, um, detailed out of the way, suppress clutter and bring out the essential, still quite complex uh, spatial relationships. Exactly. Uh, so that you find your way, you can navigate, but you also have quite a few things in view simultaneously at each time. So you always have many choices where to move next. You're not kind of going down a corridor. You're not relying on GPS. You can browse a kind of complex environment and you feel empowered and that has a lot to do with the, what I call the phenomenological project and the semiological project and has a lot to do with this ability and Hedy Allen Center is a good example of that the way these spaces yes. flow through and the way um, there's a coherency between steps of a staircase um, the joint lines in in, in in a panelization and the lighting elements which flow around and they mark the space they 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 pull you through a space elegantly and the way you can have a, a similarity between different spaces which are at the same time radically different so the way these white spaces are then flow into a kind of timber and very warm space but with very similar detail and the way similar way of treating the light so that so you you know you're in the same environment but you also know you're in a very different part of the same institution and a building which looks very different 
from each site, a very different silhouette, a very, very different set of outdoor spaces, there are multiple entrances, but still you know where you are uh, and the way you organize through, through, through um, uh, an atrium, for instance, or multiple atria. That's, that's a good example, and we have applied to this in all our projects, and that's actually the key also of, at the origin of hermeticism. When we first developed complex institutions with many parts which intersect, which are layered over, integrating even sometimes an old part, that was the moment of deconstructivism. And if you only have straight lines and boxes or uh, tilted and angled boxes and you start intersecting them and you start kind of piling them in, you very, very quickly get into a kind of indecipherable, menacing right. visual chaos. And then you realize that you can only, but you don't want to get lo let go of the complexity. You don't want to get let go of the, the multiple directions. So then you can kind of integrate it through curvature, through um, layers, but these layers are now resonating with each other. They're scripted of each other. Then one can guide you to another rather than clashing and, and creating, let's say, noise. And that's really what we what we figured out when we were trying to work with this new level of complexity and we wanted to not get lost in our own drawing. Problem with deconstructing right. is you, you, you work on a big drawing and you go take a coffee, you go back and you don't find anymore where you were walking, exactly. what you were doing, where is that space? You can't even find yourself in your own drawing. You know already you're on the, right. something that's going deeply wrong. If you don't find your way in your own drawing, nobody will find ever their way in your building. So, exactly. so parametricism, <laughs> Was, then we moved into this, the curvature, into these rules, into gradients, etc., where you can handle this complexity. And we've basically discovered parametricism uh, and the superiority of parametricism. And it was also clear we were winning these competitions against these deconstructivists. And the minimalists. Because the minimalists were just was making everything sterile and monotonous. And it was easy to... To, it, it seemed easy, but you couldn't find anything because everything was kind of bleached over by a neutral grid. The deconstructivists had the complexity, but they generate visual chaos. And we come in having both complexity and legibility, and we're winning every single competition. Everything in competition. And right. we were the ones who moved from four people to 40 people to 400 people. What's yeah. coming next? Great. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, who or what would you say was your source of inspiration uh, for sparking ideas for projects like Daxing, Beijing, Beijing Airport? Well, you know, it's not something um, you wake up and see. Uh, this is a process. So, so for instance, but the forms know... are actually like inspired from nature or any kind of. Of course, of but uh, but this is a long process. I mean, this is there's Fryotto in there. There is something we picked up. There is uh, something we explored, for instance, in um, the Serpentine Sackler Gallery in London. For instance, that idea of a column, which right. is at the same time a light well. Um, there are many ideas. The idea of kind of striated um, um, elements, the idea of big shells, and the way they're composed. So, so these, the, the, this is not something which, I mean, this is a, a synthesis of you know, 15 years of research uh, experience, uh, academic exploration, smaller projects. Uh, there's a bit of, uh, you know, uh, there's about kind of five aquatic centers in there as well. Uh, so, so, and then to kind of build it up and synthesize and, and, and I mean, of course, it's wonderful to see it in the end, wonderfully powerful, so generous and at a scale, uh, which we've never seen. It's very yeah, rewarding, right. it's very rewarding, but it's not something you have an inspiration and you put it down on a napkin. It's something which, which, which we could do after a series of steps and stages of developing the capacity and the vision and the ideas. Right, right. So as one of the pioneers in architecture, how do you think AI will evolve with architecture? And could you talk to us about the impact of AI in architecture and what will be its role? Um, well, I mean, it will be uh, a fantastic tool for everybody uh, in all professions and all domains of life. Um, and we are, I mean, the definition of AI is not 100% settled, but I mean, the, to the extent that we're using evolutionary algorithms, for instance, there is an mm -hmm. element there, uh, genetic algorithms. Um, 
to, to, to solve problems. Um, that is an artificial intelligence that's also creative, so it's generative and selective evaluative all in one. Uh, I would bring this in under artificial intelligence in the domain of design in particular. But I also think that we would find the built environment itself acquiring intelligence. And uh, that's what I was hinted at earlier. So if we embed many sensors, if we want to have uh, real-time feedback of what goes on in buildings and let the building begin to respond to that, this will be initially simple, but there will also be more and more sophisticated robotic systems. And they have to be non-mechanical. They don't have to be you going around with a control joystick trying to instruct the various systems what they should do. That is, uh, you know, that is, will fail. Um, and, and you can also not have one central planner sitting there and trying to arrange how the space needs to be redissected the next morning. He doesn't know. So what we need is decentralized agent systems. We're exploring at the moment in our research group of multiple architectural agents, human agents that should be interacting. And, and the buildings and the architectural agents need to acquire uh, utility functions. They need to acquire um, creative ranges of exploration. They need to be, uh, they need to be reinforcement learning. So machine learning principles, which, which will, um, in a sense, train up their behavior and make sure that they're always fully utilized, that they offer and propose things which are accepted and helpful. And that's the way I see it. You know, if you have a big firm with many, with many kind of staff members, you also don't want to tell them what to do. You, you want them to be self-directed. You want them to yes. fit in and make themselves useful according to their capacities, their position, their, uh, what, which network they're part of. And that's what the building, you want of the building, of course, uh, a spontaneous, creative, uh, self-directed contribution to the success of the overall organization of the institution, 100%. whether it's a museum, whether it's a library, uh, where the, bo the books continue to reshuffle so that they are in a comp competitive uh, race to be right. picked up by the right people. <laughs> they should understand it's coming in and out. And the same is with yeah. the chairs. The chairs in, your, in, your, in, your, in, your, in the spaces in your firm should uh, be responsible for being fully utilized. So they have to be kind of to become intelligent, sensitive, and, yeah. uh, and, and creative creatures. That's what I, we want with all our tools. We want them to be intelligent. It's a kind of theory uh, uh, assistance of this world. And you don't want to tell them what to do. They, you want them to tell, uh, to, to make them useful. So that's AI everywhere. And we, and we can, of course, we as architects, we have to start thinking about this. We have to simulate that. We have to build these models, and we can. We're working a lot with Unity, for instance, or Unreal and such uh, game engines where, where there could be a powerful and is going on for us technology transfer from the, from the kind of gaming industry into the architectural vision also, industry. Did, as is an architect, we also design for game industry as well? Uh, we, we should. Um, we've done some sets for film, uh, for sci-fi films, etc., which didn't, were never filmed. But May I ask which one? <laughs> we'll never film, so not in the market. Oh, okay. we, did some, we did some cityscapes and cities. <laughs> so a lot of, um, um, I mean, our buildings are always used for movie sets, you know, yeah. whether it's in India or the Wolfsburg Science Center. And I mean, there's been many explorations uh, yeah. uh, where, where they stimulate the kind of vision of the future. But I think uh, that um, we um, are, again, we're working at the moment at the AA and in our research group, we're working up capacities which will uh, bring into the real world some of the things we both at the moment are dreaming of. We can simulate them at the moment and we're building capacity. What we need is investment, the commitment, and we need to also, and that's the difficulty here, we can't just be kind of playful and illustrative with this. That could work maybe for an art context, but uh, for hard-nosed business context, we need to also have the, build the science, the, the right. evidence-based, um, let's say, simulations to show how cost is um, matched with benefit. But we're doing that, so I'm quite confident that this will, this will come. Impressive. What kind of books do you read? Is there anyone, any, any books like well, you could suggest? Well, I mean, 
of course I recommend my own books um, and and articles. You can go to my website to see what what, yeah. what my latest ideas are. I just came out with something called from intuition to simulation. Yeah. Um, I'm also been writing about uh, recent student research and what the meaning of that is. So that's always interesting. In terms of uh, other books, I mean, at the moment, I'm very much um, also engaged in um, economics, politics, libertarian politics, and I'm actually working on a new book called Markets and Discourses. So uh, looking when at look right. markets and discourses, looking right. at the future of a society where we have more degrees of freedom, because I believe for as architects, it seems pretty evident that the current uh, bureaucracy is preventing a lot of innovative ideas to come through in terms of urbanism, in terms of building typologies, in terms of mixed use, in terms of ways of living together, for instance, like co-living, co-working. There's an enormous amount of restrictions and prejudice. So I feel we need to break through this. So I'm right. uh, dreaming about um, uh, a society where we have more individual freedom, more individual responsibility, entrepreneurial freedom, and we right. would be all better off. I'm very convinced of this. We just need to, we can't, uh, you know, we can't uh, presume that we get uh, a massive, let's say, productivity boost. For instance, this AI revolution is not going to happen if we want 100 guarantees before we make the first step if we um, put handcuffs of every entrepreneur before he gets started. Exactly. Um, put, um, so, 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 so that's why this actually this technological revolution isn't happening. I exactly. mean, it should have been happening. We have, we, and, and, and even if there are some productivity gains somewhere, somewhere else they have frittered away. So if you think about it, in, in Europe, we have zero productivity gains. So we are standing exactly. still, it's paralysis. So, so that's why I have kind of a little bit of edgy <laughs> and I want, and you know, and somehow I've been recently looking at. I mean, we're mostly heading into a big major um, economic crisis, where a lot of rethinking ha is happening, and the Corona thing is also accelerating that. Accelerate. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm reading stuff. Uh, I don't even know what to recommend. This it's kind of um, predictions of the of the mega crash and the and the societal kind of controversies right. and resetting requirements and resetting opportunities which are around the corner so that's interesting stuff uh, exactly. it's like the mega crash <laughs> and, what, and, and, and what will happen so next so but, so, so uh, um, but i think there is something to it if, if it's, even if it's not a mega crash, I think we're in, a, we're in interesting uh, times where, where a lot of things will be reset. And I hope it's yeah. going to be not, it will be a reset which gives more freedom and entrepreneurship, more space to that so that we can, um, we can uh, grow ourselves out of this uh, hole. Right, right. And okay. hold, uh, the alternative is holding hands in the hole and digging and, and sinking deeper. It's nice to have the feeling yeah. that we're all holding hands, but if we all sink down, <laughs> I'm not sure. So I'd rather have the kind of, we have a competitive race to go up and fly, yes, rather exactly. than holding hands, sinking into the hole, and deeper and deeper into the hole. So that's- So you said you're writing a book, right? I'm writing a book. I mean, don't, I mean, I'm also- Do you have any release date? Uh, no, I'm giving myself a bit more time on this. I'm also, um, also conceptualizing volume three of the Autopresses of Architecture. Uh, the first was uh, uh, a new framework for architecture. The second was a new agenda for architecture. And volume three will be a new practice for architecture. So, so more practically oriented, um, um, really cashing out in terms of um, uh, new practices, new uh, uh, interventions in the built environment. So I'm working on that as well as on that more, let's say, political book which uh, which which is very much focused on how we can uh, throw away the crutches, the handcuffs, mm -hmm. and let that technology promise come through. Because I don't I don't want to see some of this. I don't want to look back in another twenty years and say we still haven't gotten there. We have we haven't we're still going around in circles. So yes. that's that's what I'm working on uh, and hoping for. Great, great. So as our final question, what kind of advice would you like to share with? young professionals and students maybe? 
Oh, well, yeah, I mean, um, read my That's book. That's a controversial read my, read, question. Well, those who have the capacity and those who have the intellect, uh, they should read some of my articles and then dig deeper into the book. Because I think it's important that we have intellectual leadership, that we have aspirations where there's not only the intuitive fascination with, with these beautiful constructs and complex spaces and that we love them, but also that we, we understand how they uh, help society to flourish, how they help uh, to make us more productive, how they, how they help to um, also be highly, um, let's say, um, environmentally kind of light in their footprint and in their, in their... So, so that's one thing. Read up, but also skill up. Invest in the skills now. As a student, you will never have the chance. Later on, once you get stuck, you're stuck with, with, the, with the skills you have. You maybe gain some experience and maturity. Uh, you, right. you gain managerial capacity. But as a designer, and, uh, you, you, if you don't acquire the skills now, if you don't acquire the virtuosity, you will be, um, be, be, you'll be stuck with what you bring at that point. And, and therefore, um, and that will also be means what kind of level you can enter, which firms you will be joining, which teams you can enter into. And they're, they're, they're not all the same level. They're not all, all with the same kind of energy and ambition. So that's the time. Uh, you got to get your skills up, and that means working on them. But you also do your readings, I mean, uh, and understand why you're skilling up. I think both of us very much appreciate it. Uh, and, and, and um, yeah. Great. Watch these, watch these videos. I mean, I think I'm, YouTube. I'm more, more <laughs> I know I'm more learning through YouTube myself um, right. and through podcasts and audiobooks on the, on the run rather than books themselves. I mean, I have a massive library, but I don't know. That, that might, uh, might um, remain kind of boxed up somewhere. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Uh, thank okay, you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Patrick. It was a pleasure, and sorry again. I was kind of uh, getting so frustrated <laughs> with it's my okay. first Instagram uh, live thing. Uh, but yeah. It's okay. Thank you. See Appreciate you that. Bye, See bye, you. Bye, Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. My pleasure. Bye now. Goodbye. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe to Peer Talks Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts in order not to miss a single episode. Also, you can find out more by going to parametric-architecture.com slash PATalks. Please share this podcast with a URL to inspire a friend. Also, you can use hashtag PATalks on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook to give us a feedback about the podcast. Thank you.